In this episode, we're going to talk about some common kitchen witch practices and a little bit about what it means to be a kitchen witch. Hi, I'm Leandra Witchwood, and welcome to The Magic Kitchen, where we explore magic, recipes, herbs, rituals, and everything in between. Join me as we practice the old ways in a modern world. Merry meet and welcome. I get a lot of questions through my blog, themagickitchen.com asking a variety of different questions. But one in particular is about becoming and practicing as a kitchen witch or kitchen witchery. And I always have to think about this response because kitchen witchcraft is so vast and it really is more of an umbrella term for someone who prefers to practice in the hearth of the home. And a kitchen witch can be a cottage witch, it can be a hedge witch, a green witch, a digital witch even, and still practice a regular form of magic that is centered around food and cooking and recipes and creating through flavor and texture. So when we talk about kitchen witchery and kitchen magic, we're really talking about a bunch of different things that get molded and meshed into a single practice. Now, I do like to note that kitchen witchcraft, or one becoming a kitchen witch, is not formed by a single spell, a single recipe. It's a everyday practice. Kitchen witchery is something you dedicate to. It's something you become every day, something you do every day. And I think that's what makes it seem like such a mundane practice is because it is an everyday practice and it becomes looked at as domestic or basic or boring, which it is not. There are many, many, many skills that must be incorporated into the kitchen witchery world (laughs) and none of them are boring and none of them should be dismissed. I think in our modern culture, basic skills, and I don't mean basic as in boring or trivial, I mean basic as in the roots, the old ways. A lot of these skills are being dismissed and lost. Skills like primitive patience and the ability to cook think about it. In our modern culture, we have so many resources available to us from frozen pre-prepared foods and processed foods, boxed foods, reconstituted (laughs) when we add hot water or throw them in the microwave, to restaurants and even grocery stores that will provide fully cooked meals. And all we have to do is throw them in the microwave or in the oven for a few minutes. So the preparation of food is becoming sort of a lost art. 
And this is a life skill. Learning to cook for ourselves is a life skill. And our ancestors would recognize cooking as one of the most rooted types of magic. So when we seek to work with the old ways, recognize the old ways, and induce our practice with tasks and skills that are representative of the old ways, food becomes paramount in this. And it's, it seems to be a disappearing skill. Now, just a little disclaimer before we go any further. Everything that I present to you here in this show is going to come from my perspective. It is going to be colored by my perception, my life experience, and it's not – I don't mean to say anything in here that is the be-all, end-all because it's not. The way I do things <clears> – <throat> is not the way everyone else does things. And that's okay. That's acceptable. That is actually how witchcraft should be. There is no cookie cutter model. And anyone who tells you that you're doing it wrong because you're not doing it their way is not understanding this. They're, they don't understand the true backbone of witchcraft, Wicca, paganism, because this is a very diverse path. And the only time someone should tell you that you're doing it wrong is if you were trying to practice a specific tradition where there are specific rules. And then in that case, you're going to run into, okay, wait, well, you know, if you're going to sane instead of smudge, you have to do it this way type thing. That's a cultural thing. Think about this when I offer my knowledge. It does come from 25 years of experience. It does come from my training. It comes from me getting my butt out there <laughs> and practicing with different groups and different people and different types of magic. But it is still colored by my perceptions and my experience. And I, I want you to understand that what I offer you here is not the be all end all. So I like to up, be upfront with that. Um, the only time that you might need to be corrected on how to do something is if you're trying to boil water, but you forget to light the fire underneath the pot. That's that's a simple technical thing. That's not practice. That's not belief. That's not how you know a, tr a specific tradition might do it. It's how everybody does it. You have to give your water some heat if you want it to boil, right? But that's just think of that. That's just a uh, basic example. So let's go back to kitchen witchcraft being viewed as a, a basic type of practice, a boring, mundane, domestic type practice. Now, when we talk about domestic, it gives that hint that there could be a wild side to it. And this is absolutely true because kitchen witchery does have a wild side. It has a little primal essence to it. Now, <clears throat> in this episode, and whenever I speak to my um, audience or whenever I give lectures or anytime I talk about kitchen witchery, I am not going to get into the vegan versus meat eater debate. That is a personal preference. And if you 
are vegan, great. If you are omnivore, great. Piscatarian, fine, whatever. How you prefer to eat is your preference. Do not tell anyone. Do not tell me. Do not tell anybody listening to this podcast. Do not go onto Facebook in the Facebook groups. Do not go anywhere and tell people that they need to eat this way. And this is the only right way to do it. Because again, we go back into the diversity of witchcraft, of, of being human. And veganism is not right for everybody. Um, being an omnivore might not be right for everybody. It's a personal preference. So just to add to that, I, I want you to be, I want to be very clear that that's not something I tolerate. People telling other people what they should and should not do when it's a personal preference. So going back to the idea of like you can't boil water without heat underneath it. Now, if you're complaining that your water won't boil, <laughs> you're not lighting some fire underneath it, then yeah, then you're doing it wrong. But that's a totally different you – know, we're comparing apples and oranges here. So, okay, back to <laughs> – sidetrack – back to the idea of kitchen witchery being mundane or boring. Think about this. When you're cooking with magic – you are cooking with magic. You are you're offering up a piece of yourself onto a plate, and you're offering that to your ancestors, your guides, your protectors, your loved ones, your family, your friends. This is far from boring or domestic. This is profound. And anyone who accepts a plate of food from you that has been magically infused. Now scratch that. Anybody who accepts a plate of food from you who did not lift a finger to cook it should deeply appreciate the efforts you put into creating that meal. Because even if you're not infusing it with magic, if you're cooking with love, you're still infusing that food with something special. And anybody who does not feel gratitude towards the effort you made to cook them food, to nourish them, and to quiet their growling belly doesn't deserve your food, in my opinion. But when we as witches take each ingredient and we infuse those ingredients, we take that recipe and we magically concoct it. We magically put it together and then we magically plate it and we offer it to our loved ones and our protectors and our ancestors. We are doing something profound. We are initiating change. We are ensuring peace in the home. We are doing something that no one else can do. And these offerings are sacred. Our work in the kitchen is sacred and it should be treated as such. It is far more than just slapping together some boxed macaroni and cheese and making sure that the kids aren't hungry anymore. When we do it with love, when we do it with magic, it becomes something else. It becomes something profound and beautiful. And again, we're going back to those old ways. We're bringing ourselves back to what our ancestors would recognize as magic. Because where did they congregate when they wanted to share stories, when they wanted to share knowledge? They congregated around the hearth fires. 
whether that be in a fireplace or around a fire pit where everyone communally gathered and shared information and stories and connected with one another. Our modern hearth is our stove, our kitchen, where everybody seems to congregate anyway, right? (laughs) So, and it extends this this hearth connection. This it's almost instinctual if you think about it, because think about when you have when you have people over the at the house for holidays or um, friends over for drinks, and and who where does everybody congregate? They tend to congregate in the kitchen. Unless your kitchen is small like mine, then they congregate around the dining room table. And that is the connection right there. It's where everybody wants to come and be together. And it's almost instinctual, like it's ingrained in our bones to come together over food, over drinks, and talk, and be together and know one another. So when we look at ourselves as modern kitchen witches, our kitchen becomes that hearth and extends out to the table where we set our food down for everyone to enjoy, or maybe it's a countertop. Thinking about all of this and thinking about how profound kitchen witchcraft is, even though I think we've been conditioned to view it as mundane, as, you know, the housewife chore, the domesticated person's responsibility. Again, domestic suggests there's a wild side, and sure, there is. When we look at the different types of kitchen witches out there, or even the different types of witches, we see so much diversity. I see every kitchen witch as being different because, first of all, every kitchen is different. Every cooking style is different. Um, I have a very strange cooking style, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm a white girl, but I cook ethnically. I cook with flavor. I use my spices. I love spicy food. I love spiced food. I love garlic. I love cayenne. I love using curry, all those spices. I really love flavor. And I think that is a true hallmark of a kitchen witch he or she will love flavor, want to try different flavors. Ooh, let's see how this meshes with this. You know, let me, let me put some cardamom in with this chocolate and coffee and what happens. And, and the flavors become profound because we want to experiment. We want to experience in the kitchen. And that is one of the drives that I think kitchen witches have based on my experience, at least. And this is what makes each kitchen witch different. So how they do things, how they perceive things are going to be very different across the board. How they, you know, set up their kitchen and organize everything and structure everything is going to be different, which makes this practice so diverse that there is no one right way. But that also lends into often this practice becoming solitary because it becomes something that's so focused. Now, that doesn't mean you can't share your kitchen witch practice and invite others into your kitchen to practice with you. Um, That's an absolutely great way to share the knowledge. But I do find that most kitchen witches tend to be solitary, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can make it whatever you want. 
And again, it's probably going to depend on the size of your kitchen. If you have a tiny little kitchen where you can stand in the middle of it and touch each side of your kitchen with your arms spread out, (laughs) you're probably not going to invite too many people into that kitchen. So it's going to be a solitary practice, which is how I tend to practice. It's very solitary, simply because I can't put any people, anybody else in there. I can't put more people into my kitchen than myself. It becomes very crowded. But that doesn't mean I don't take it outside. It doesn't mean I don't cook with with friends and family out on the barbecue grill or over the fire pit and that sort of thing. So thinking about how solitary this practice might become, it also beckons me to talk about the mindset of a kitchen witch. Your head in all magic. And I, I, I think this applies across the board. In all magic, your head needs to be in the right place. You can't be a kitchen witch or a hedge witch or cottage witch or a digital witch or a tea witch, an herbal witch, whatever, whatever you want to label yourself as. You can't be a witch without having a solid mindset and having your ideas your attitudes tuned into the right frequency. Um, This does not mean, and I say this a lot, you'll read it in my blog, you will hear it on my YouTube channel. I say this over and over and over again. This does not mean you have to have the fluffy bunny, butterfly, rainbow, bubbly attitude where everything's fine and dandy. Toxic positivity is still toxic. What I mean by the right mindset is that you need to think that you deserve your magic. You need to believe that you deserve good results, positive results. You need to believe that you deserve to manifest what it is that you desire to manifest. You need to believe in yourself. You need to believe in your magic. You need to believe that you are deserving and worthy. And that does not mean that you need to have an entitled attitude because, yeah, sometimes we just don't deserve what we think we do because we don't have the right attitude. But it's about being gracious. It's about knowing that you've done the hard work and because you've done the hard work that the things will come to you that need to come to you in the time that they are supposed to come to you. This does not mean we sit on the floor kicking and screaming, demanding that our guides, ancestors, and patrons (laughs) provide for us when we have only half-assed the work or, you know, just simply demanded it. It's not how it works. Having the right mindset, the right attitude means that you know that you are taken care of because you're doing the work and what you need, what you want, what you should have in your life will come to you because You are connected to your guides. You are connected to your patrons. You are honoring them every day. You are honoring yourself every day and you are honoring your path every day. So keep your mindset in check. If you're going through the day and you realize that you're having adverse reactions, triggers to certain things, ask yourself why. And I talk a lot about this when I do shadow work. And Shadow work as a witch is incredibly important. And that's like (laughs) shadow work is a whole other series probably when we're talking about magic and the blockages we hit, the glass ceilings, if you will, in our magic. 
So let's talk a little bit about the feral kitchen witch. I love this idea because if we're going to consider kitchen witchery or the cottage witch, the hearth and home witch as domestic, then let's talk about her counter or his counter. Let's talk about the feral (laughs) cottage kitchen hearth and home witch. And, you know, this might be the witch that spends a lot more time outside than inside because a kitchen witch practice is either or. You can be indoors or outdoors. And that's one of the wonderful ways it's diverse because you don't have to stay inside to practice. You don't have to be outside to practice. You can do both. And if the weather doesn't agree with you cooking outside, go inside. If the weather agrees with you cooking outside and it just seems wrong to be inside, go outside. Follow your intuition. Follow the weather. Follow what Mother Nature is is showing us. Get out there on that barbecue pit and get out there and light up that grill or, you know, cook over your fire pit in your backyard. Cook outside, definitely. And I think this is one of the markers of a feral kitchen witch is he or she needs to be outside. I do this a lot, Um, even when in the winter when it's cold (laughs) and there's snow on the ground. I will be outside cooking if I can. And it's relaxing to me. It's reconnecting, rejuvenating for me. And the, the feral kitchen witch might also be a forager. He or she might go out into the forest, into their yard or um, other natural places where they have permission and, and forage for their foods, you know, forage for mushrooms or forage for greens and roots and wild vegetables, wild foods. And before anybody runs out and does this, please just – you need to educate yourself on foraging first. Because you don't want to just pick up any mushroom or any leaf or any root and start munching on it without knowing what it is, how to harvest it, how to how to conserve while you're harvesting, how much of the plant you should harvest. There's a lot that goes into foraging that you need to understand before you run out and go do it. Find a class. There's plenty out there online and in person that will show you how to forage for wild foods and feed yourself the uh, wild or uh, feral kitchen witch might also just grow her own foods or his own foods in their yard and, you know, follow the moon cycles and planting and harvesting, that sort of thing. And this is where we get into other types of magic that um, complement kitchen witchery. So kitchen witchcraft tends to be more organic or intuitive. One, because it tends to be um, solitary. So you're doing a lot of it yourself. So you're kind of listening to that inner guide of what to do next and how much to add of this and that sort of thing. While you might follow a recipe, I find over the years what I've done, what I tend to do is I have a recipe, but I've got, I've gained enough knowledge, wisdom and skill in cooking that I can look at a recipe and go, oh no, I don't want that. I I want to do this instead. And the recipe is completely changed because of of my experience, my knowledge, I know that, oh, I don't want nutmeg here. I want to put cinnamon instead. And I can swap that out easily and it still tastes great because I've learned. So this is why one of the reasons why the practice of kitchen witchery is an everyday thing because you need to develop 
that muscle of wisdom and knowledge that you can exercise while you're cooking without having to refer to a dozen different books. So in that in the idea that kitchen witchery is not heavily ceremonial, it this again comes from my perspective, my experience. I when I first started 25 plus years ago, I'm dating myself, I know. <laughs> when I first started learning my path and understanding who and what I was, remembering who and what I was or who and what I am. When I began remembering, I started with Wicca because that was more widely accepted. And so as I began learning Wicca, I started training under very ceremonial traditions, Gardnerian, Alexandrian. So this is where my baseline came from. I thought everything had to be high ceremony. And trust me, I do hesitate calling it high ceremony now that I know more about it, because high ceremony suggests that it is somehow superior to other ceremonies, other rituals, other magics, which is not true. It's not superior. It's just more structured. Again, just to clarify, that doesn't mean that it is trivial or dismissible. High ceremonial magic is fabulous. It is beautiful. But if it's not right for you, you might be better off as a spectator of it rather than a practitioner of it. It is exhausting. It requires a lot of memorization, a lot of you can only do this because of this, or you can only do that because of that. And it's very rigid, almost OCD. I do <laughs> affectionately, I call it the OCD magic because it has so many regulations in it. It's very patriarchal in that sense, where it's very linear. You can only do certain things at certain times. You can only wear certain robes for certain ceremonies. You only light certain candles at certain times. You only call certain deities or or guardians at certain times. And it didn't allow me personally to tap into my intuition, my intuitive magic that allowed me to change directions when I needed to because I was being guided there. So kitchen witchcraft, when I discovered that this was a thing, <laughs> it I was I was instantly drawn to it because I realized I could be intuitive. I could use all those skills that my mom taught me, my grandmother taught me, my aunt taught me in the kitchen. And I could do something profound with those skills, not just cook a cool meal and feed everybody, but something else. It was something more. And this this really attracted me to the idea of a kitchen witch practice. Now, this does not mean that kitchen witchery is not structured and it's not organized. It has to be. You have to be structured. You have to be organized. You have to be able to multitask. You have to be able to you know watch your sauce reduce while your potatoes are boiling so you don't screw something up, right? You have to know your timing so that you're not – pulling out your vegetables while your meat is freshly cooking because then your vegetables are going to get cold while your meat is still hot. And, you know, you have to know your timing. You have to know the progression of certain things. But it's not so rigid that I f feel constricted in kitchen witchery. I've also come to discover the different types of magic you can use in kitchen witchcraft. 
And this is where I really get excited because I love learning new techniques. I love learning new skills. I love knowledge. And this is where it's so much fun because you can incorporate so many different things, so many different elements in your kitchen witch practice from, oh, sigil magic. Let's let's start there because that one's fun too. <laughs> I know sigil magic um, recently has become kind of a buzzword in the witchcraft and pagan community. And this is, I mean, this is nothing new. Nothing that we learn now as witches is new, okay? Maybe the digital part might be a little bit new, but it's still a spin on old ways. So when we talk about sigil magic, our ancestors have used glyphs and sigils and protective um, drawings for centuries. And when we incorporate this into our cooking, into our food, it becomes amazing because now we have a visual representation of what we're trying to do. You can create your own sigils and draw them with your condiments. You can carve them into your dough. You can draw them with a knife, carve them into your potato before you boil it into your carrot, which leads us into another type of magic we can use, which is representational magic that kind of link together, right? And if we think about it, some of the first poppets that were ever made were potatoes. Yep. <laughs> think about um, carved turnips at Samhain. That's representational magic. And when we carve a face or a body out of something, we are representing the person where the magic is supposed to go. Think about in Kitchen Witchery, you're creating a healing soup or stew for a sick friend. Take one of the ingredients, a carrot or a potato, and carve a little doll that represents them and throw that in to cook with the stew. And envision your magic seeping into that doll and seeping into them and healing them from the inside out. This is powerful stuff. There's nothing <laughs> boring or mundane or basic <laughs> about this. This is profound stuff. And this is what we do as kitchen witches. But it's all under the surface. You know, your husband or partner or girlfriend in the next room won't know what you're doing if it's a solitary practice. You're just doing it. And that's maybe why it seems a little boring or basic because if the person on looking is not in the know, all they see you doing is chopping up a potato or carving a potato. They don't understand what's going on. So from representational magic, we can move into garden magic. This is where we, as kitchen witches, have the opportunity to connect with our food from the seed to plate. And I think this is absolutely one of the best ways to practice as a kitchen witch is to have some sort of garden, whether it's a container garden or a windowsill garden or a full-blown backyard urban farm, <laughs> growing some of our own ingredients and foods I think is one of the best ways to practice as a kitchen witch because from the time you plant it, you know, you're peppers or your tomatoes or your herbs, from the time you put it into the ground and start nurturing that plant, you're beginning to develop a relationship with it. You're beginning to develop an understanding between yourself 
and that plant that will help you infuse your magic with the right purpose and intention later on. And kitchen witchery, one of my favorite parts of kitchen witchery is um, creating recipes, which leads into tea magic or creating salves, soaps, lotions, bath and body care products across the board, tinctures, um, tonics, and elixirs. And all of this is creating something that we use, ingest, or utilize for a magical purpose. Uh, salves, you know, we can use those to heal our skin. Tonics and tinctures and elixirs can be used to heal our insides. Um, tea magic is a great, great element to incorporate into your kitchen witchery practice. I really dug myself in and became knowledgeable and heck, I even built a business out of it. <laughs> and it is where I find so much joy and so much magic in taking the herbs. And, and especially when I combine the seemingly incompatible herbs together and create something profound and delicious to drink and savor, something that heals us from the inside and creates magic from within outward into the world and creates that change that we need in our lives. You can also incorporate crystal magic. Now, of course, I don't recommend putting the crystals in your food unless you are absolutely sure that it's safe because some crystals can't handle heat or wet. Um, so I don't recommend doing that unless you know your crystals really well. Uh, instead, I recommend putting them somewhere near your cooking area. So uh, definitely create a kitchen altar where you put special crystals for whatever working it is you're doing. And same with candle magic. Candle magic is a great way to incorporate other types of magic into your cooking process, your kitchen witchery process. You can create special candles or buy them. Uh, there's plenty of special vendors out there, witches who have created businesses out of creating magically infused candles that are effective if you don't have time to make your own. I used to make my own. I loved it, but I quickly realized that I just didn't have time for it anymore. So this is why we have wonderfully creative witches out there who create businesses around meeting our needs because we live in a very, very busy society, right? <laughs> we don't all have time to create our own candles or create our own salves or create our own tea blends, that sort of thing. So find some candles that resonate with you. Maybe it's the color. Maybe it's they're infused with special herbs or crystals and burn those special candles during your cooking process. This helps lend more energy to your work. And, you know, when we start talking about tools and items we can incorporate into our practice, of course, we're going to have to talk about the typical tools you think of when we practice magic. So many witches prefer to practice with many different tools from wands and athames or athames to chalices and um, blades. And in kitchen witchery, we have different styles of these things because we need to keep our hands clear, clean, 
unhindered and focused on the recipe where we we are creating. So if we have a knife in one hand and a crystal wand in another, we're hindering ourselves. So in Kitchen Witchery, our spoon that we stir with becomes our wand. Our cutting knife, our chef knife, our paring knife becomes our athame or our, our sword, our blade. Our aprons become our ritual robes. So let's talk about tools a little bit, about how, what types of tools we need and how we come by them. Uh, you know, if your knife is going to become your athame or athame, your sword, your blade, and your spoon is going to become your wand, we need to think about quality. Your, your cookware, your knives, your utensils, everything you use in the kitchen should be of good quality. Now, this does not mean you have to start off this way. You can, little by little, this is what I've done over the years, little by little, I have replaced my Teflon and my cheap aluminum cookware with cast iron. So now I almost exclusively cook on cast iron. And that took some time, okay? Quality cookware is not cheap. Do your research when you are going in to buy or find or locate um, quality cookware and knives and utensils that you're going to use in your practice. Just like you would take time to either make or buy your wand, you want to take time to really think about what you want. Um, There are a couple of companies out there, small companies, I think on Etsy, that create magical spoons wooden spoons that are carved with magical intention. And this is a great way to adopt the idea that your spoon becomes your wand because it's now representing your practice. It is now representing who you are. And you can do this yourself. You can go buy wood-burning kits, tools, and some quality wooden spoons and make your own. But if you don't have the time, Go buy it. Support some local businesses. Knives are something that I always like to stress because having good, comfortable, well-balanced, sharp, sharp knives will transform how you perform in the kitchen. It will cut your fatigue. It will cut your time in the kitchen. And you won't be dreading (laughs) the whole process. Because let's be honest, if you are dreading any part of your practice, if you're having to talk yourself into any part of your practice, there's something wrong there and you need to address it. So if it comes down to you hate chopping, dicing, and slicing, it might be a matter of honing your skills and getting the right tools for the job. Uh, Think about your apron. Your apron becomes your ritual robe because in the kitchen, we need to be comfortable. So we don't want to wear things that we might wear in a high ceremony. I definitely would not wear some of my robes that we used in high ceremony because, for one, they were made of fine fabrics. Some were silk and brocade. And I would be devastated if any kind of grease or harm came to those robes. And and they were pretty elaborate. They had bell sleeves. They had a lot of flowing fabric. They were not comfortable for doing an activity in. They were meant for a, 
as a display of honoring the deities. So they were very fine and a little uncomfortable, to be honest. So they're not something I would use for cooking. <laughs> I don't recommend it. I also don't recommend um, cooking naked, sky clad. No. <laughs> you ever heard the old adage, don't fry bacon naked? Well, yes, it applies. And it's it's a very, very very good advice. Don't don't cook naked. So use your aprons. You know, you can have one apron that's all purpose or you can have several aprons for different types of workings. You decide. So let's talk about your ingredients. A kitchen witch needs to be very mindful of his or her ingredients. The idea is to use items that are minimally processed. Why? Your ingredients are going to lend to your working their energy, their essence, their attributes. This is why we choose certain types of foods, herbs, spices for certain workings. You know, it's why we choose cinnamon for success. And if we're not using a food that is closely linked or closely representative of its original state, we're losing a lot of its magical essence. Think about what the industry does with processed foods, okay? They strip the food of all its nutrients. In this process, they're also stripping it of all of its magical essence, all of its magical aspects. And then they reconstitute the food with nutrients because that's what they recognize as being vital to that food as as being a food right it needs to be nutritious so they reconstitute the food with nutrition but they don't reconst they can't reconstitute it with its magical essence so that is completely lost from the food and so why do they do this they do this for shelf life they do this um, for consistency and flavor but what they don't recognize is that when they do this, they're stripping it of everything that food ever represented. And so when we use highly processed foods in our kitchen magic, we are missing what's vital to the purpose. Kitchen witches use food because food has its own magical aspects. Food has its own magical abilities. But if we're using processed foods, then we're missing that. There's a vacancy. There's a void. So avoid processed foods. They're highly processed. Um, and if you can, grow your own food or find foods that are as fresh and as whole as possible. And when you can't, if you're in an, in an absolute pinch and you absolutely cannot find fresh foods or cook, the, you know, provide yourself with fresh foods, then you have to really default on that mindset and you become the heavyweight in the, asp, in the magical working because your food can't do that for you anymore. The food can only become the, the conduit for your intention. So you really have to be focused. You can't be distracted. You can't deviate from your purpose. So it is possible. Yes, you can cook with processed foods, but keep in mind you need to really focus in and fill that void that's created by processed foods. So kitchen skills. Yeah. <laughs> Hone your kitchen skills. This means your ability to chop, dice, slice in the kitchen using a knife and a cutting board. 
It means getting effective and being efficient in the kitchen. It means honing in that idea of structure and organization so that you're not scattered and um, distracted in the kitchen. I highly recommend learning basic cooking skills from a professional. Now, I know I, I said this too, but I learned from my grandmother and my mother, and they were very good, and they knew what they were doing. Yes, they did. My grandmother, my mother, my aunt, they all knew what they were doing in the kitchen, but they all still had bad habits in the kitchen that made them less effective. And this inefficiency led to fatigue. And I didn't realize how many bad habits they had taught me. (laughs) Yeah, they taught me some great techniques and skills and ideas. They had a wealth of knowledge and wisdom to them, but they also had a lot of bad habits they brought in with it, which made them less effective. But I didn't realize that. I I didn't know better. You don't know better until you know better. (laughs) And you do better when you know better. So I highly recommend finding a professional chef that teaches basic cooking skills from knife skills to everything else and learn from them. Learn where maybe you can break some bad habits that hinder you in the kitchen, that make you more fatigued in the kitchen, that waste your time in the kitchen. And I didn't realize how difficult I was making it all myself until I had learned from a professional. I took a six-week course for a teen cooking program that we were teaching at a local farm. And I did not realize how many bad habits I had until I learned a better way. And once I learned the better way and I used the better way, once I utilized the new knowledge that I gained – my time in the kitchen is effortless. I don't walk out of the kitchen feeling like a truck ran me over or that I just, you know, screwed everything up because I didn't understand what the recipe was saying when they said chiffonade or what they meant by braise instead of, you know, just frying something, right? So learn those basic skills and get good at them. That way you are not wasting your time you're not questioning if you're doing it right or not. And you're li- you're limiting the f- amount of fatigue you're going to experience when cooking something profound. And I think even YouTube has many teachers on there who will teach you basic sh- chopping, slicing, dicing skills with the knife. And this is also why you need good quality knives and a good solid cutting board because those are really the only tools you need for a lot of things. Now, I know having the gadgets, we're going to go back to tools a little bit. (laughs) I know having, you know, gadgets is a thing (laughs) for Americans, especially. We seem to love our slicer, dicers, choppers, processors, blah, blah, blah. But in reality, how often do we really use them? Especially when you learn to hone in on your knife and cutting board skills, you really realize how much you don't need them. You don't need that fancy chopper, slicer, dicer, whatever. You only need a few things that you will use often. And some things, yeah, some gadgets will make your life easier. Like I love my garlic press. I do not sit and dice or mince garlic by hand. I use my garlic press because to me, that has become the most effective way to get 
small pieces of garlic into my food without spending a whole lot of time dicing up garlic. That's only one example of a, of a gadget that can be very helpful. But I know a lot of us in our kitchens, we have these weird gadgets that we use once. Oh, that was cool. And it goes in the back of a cupboard or on a shelf and we're for, it's forgotten about. So just think about that. Like take, sur- take a survey of the items you have in your kitchen and see what, what do you use often and what do you never use. And maybe, you know, take some time to you know, take a month or so and pull everything out of your cabinets, out of your cupboards and use them and see, are they really that effective? Or is it just easier to pull out your knife and cutting board to do what that fancy gadget would do? So that's my two pieces on that. <laughs> and and again, this perspective comes from me having, I have a very small kitchen, right? I, we've, we've mentioned this. <laughs> so I can't have a whole lot of gadgets in my kitchen. It just takes up too much room. So if I discover that I'm not using something, it goes in the donate box and it ends up at the local charity. We could talk about this for days, kitchen witchery. There's so much that we could discuss. So I'm going to end this here. And I'm going to leave you with a reminder to explore, get curious, test things out, try different foods, flavors, recipes, and make your kitchen witch practice uniquely yours. Make it something that you truly enjoy and look forward to every day. And demand respect for it. Demand those who partake in the foods that you create Demand that they respect it, and that will come through you respecting it yourself. I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for joining me in this episode. Please visit my website, leandrawitchwood.com, to sign up for my newsletter and stay up to date on new episodes, articles, and more. Blessed be.